bots are becoming increasingly relevant to our everyday interactions with technology. A bot sometimes mediates the interactions of two people. Examples of bots include automated reply systems, intelligent chatbots, classification systems, and prediction machines. These systems are often powered by machine learning, and the machine learning systems can be black boxes to the user. Today's guest, Rob May, argues that the systems should be auditable and accountable, and that using a blockchain-based identity system for bots is a viable solution to the machine learning auditability problem. Rob is the CEO of Tala, a knowledge-based provider for business teams, and the BotChain project was spun out of Tala as a solution to the problem of bot identity. In this episode, we talk about BotChain and the application of blockchain to bot identity, as well as the current state of ICOs and the viability of utility token ecosystems. BotChain has its own crypto token called BotCoin. Rob May, you are the CEO of Tala and BotChain. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. The last time you were on, we spoke about AI more broadly because you were curating the technically sentient newsletter that's since become Inside AI. How have your broad perspectives on artificial intelligence changed in the last year or so since we spoke? That's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed from a sort of business side is that I'm an angel investor in a bunch of AI companies, and they've been a little bit slower, maybe than SaaS companies were to build. So that's been interesting to watch. And I think it's due to a couple of reasons. I think one reason is that the market is still figuring out exactly what they want, how they want to apply AI, their workflow behavior changes that I think not every company is ready to do. And then I think sometimes there's challenges in figuring out how to do the training, get the data, you know, make the, you know, make the models work and, and everything like that. And so I think it's a, I think that's been one big trend. And then on the market side, I think, I think a lot of people have started to talk about the limits of deep learning. What's next? You know, what are the opportunities to learn on new data sets, smaller sets of data, stuff like that, that, that wasn't talked about as much in, in the last few years. For the last three years, you have been working on a company called Tala, which makes digital assistance for chat systems like Slack. Describe what Tala does. Yeah, so Tala has moved very much to a model where the chat assistant is only part of the system, right? So much more of the system is now, you know, in the browser, on the web. And probably the best way to describe what we do today is that we have a um, we have a digital assistant that is sort of a knowledge manager that hangs a sits over top of a broader knowledge base that we call a knowledge base for active content. So we primarily sell it to sales and support teams and groups of people where the information is changing rapidly. And so there are a whole bunch of workflows that are required to make sure that you have the right information, that it's kept up to date, that it's accurate, that the right people have access to it. And so we have a digital assistant that sits over that and automates a lot of those workflows for you to make the whole thing a lot easier. How do employees at a company, like in a sales type of role or a customer support type of role, how do they interact with Tala? How do they interact with the the digital assistant or the knowledge base? Well, we have a couple of different ways. I mean, you can use it like a traditional knowledge base where you go onto the web in your browser and you search for what you're looking for. You can access it through Slack or through Microsoft Teams. Uh, You can access it through a widget that is deployed on your internet or on your website. 
So some of our deployments, we interact directly with end customers, and some of the deployments we interact with employees instead. So a very common use case is something like a company that has a complex product space. It's changing a lot. They're launching a lot of new stuff, and they're hiring a lot of new salespeople, and the salespeople don't have all the right information. And so we serve this sort of product specialist or sales engineering role where people can go in and ask questions and find information really quickly because... We've done some AI-related tasks like, for example, we have probably one of the only you know, companies in the country that's got a machine comprehension model deployed into a production system. And what that means is we can ingest sentences or paragraphs of data and then make inferences about it, which means we can answer direct questions that aren't keyword searches. We can infer things from the data that might not be explicitly stated to give people you know, faster answers about things, you know, product features or things that a product might support or, or pieces of the sales process. Some customers will expose that to their end users and, and some will only expose it to their reps. And then from there, we can take a lot of the tasks that come out and, and automate them. So, you know, if you ask a question and then, you know, you get an answer that might say like, you know, you need to fill out this form, we can go ahead and automate the form fill out via chat as well. And just do a whole bunch of tasks like that. So it's, so it's very much around natural language processing and, and automation. And then our goal is to constantly automate more and more and more of those processes around unstructured text. And the challenges that you've witnessed in AI companies more broadly, things like model training and finding the data, how have those impacted you at Tala? Like where you have these certain challenges, not only around NLP, uh, not only around inferring things from unstructured data, but you also are figuring out the burgeoning user interface of the human and the bot, the human interacting with the chat interface or a voice interface. That's kind of a new thing. It is. And there's a couple of things that we've had to do. The biggest one is that you really have to explain to people why they need to invest some time in training. You know, we had this moment with a customer where they were sort of saying like, hey, we don't really have time to spend some, you know, even sort of five minutes a day training Tala, even though if you think about it, if you have, you know, 20 people and they each spend five minutes a day every day, like you're getting a lot of training in for that AI agent in a, in a given week or month. And so I said, well, tell me how long it takes to train a new person in general. And they went, oh, well, it takes about two weeks. And they paused and went, oh, okay, I, I get it, right? You're, when you look at that, it, it takes a new employee two weeks to get up to speed. And that's going to be a drag on some team members. Uh, if you can make those team members more productive, you know, employ fewer people and all that by, by automating a lot of the work with AI, it's actually a really good investment. So I think getting people to understand that piece of a, a workflow behavior change has been one of the tough problems. The second thing that's changed about the sales process from other companies that I've run has been that because there's a component here that requires a lot of data analysis and onboarding, we started most of our bigger deals with sort of paid pilots rather than going directly through the sales process. And this company, Tala, I think this has given you firsthand experience with the fact that when people interact with digital assistants or bots or AI, whatever we want to call these things, it's sometimes unclear why the AI acts a certain way. And the kind of non-deterministic, at least from the point of view of the human interacting with the AI, the non-deterministic function there can potentially create conflicts or it can create problems or it can at least, at the very least, create opacity. You don't really know why the system is behaving a certain way other than the fact that it's been trained a certain way. When did you have that insight and what are the problems that that opacity can create? 
you know, humans are used to dealing with software that is rules-based. And so what's happened is that you've had this you've had this time period where for most of the history of software, if you use the piece of software and you did something with it on January 1st and then you did it again on June 1st, it did the same thing. And it's interesting now that software is changing and adapting and, and that's what we want because it makes the software better and it's going to learn and it's going to do more. But there are a lot of problems because we don't always understand why it makes the decisions that it makes. And you can see these things in some small percentage of examples, you can see it go awry. And some of the examples are like, um, you know, OpenAI wrote this blog post from late last year about a reinforcement learning model that they employed to try to win a video game. And the reward system for the video game was maximize your points. And the AI figured out it could maximize its points by going off into this cove and collecting coins and going in circles and eventually crashing into things and catching on fire. And like, it was very you know, it was not what the authors of the algorithm expected, you know, and then probably the most public example was Microsoft's Taybot, which they launched and was supposed to learn from people on Twitter. And in 48 hours, it became racist and misogynistic and had to, had to sort of shut down because it learned the wrong things. And so we don't always understand how these algorithms work or what they're learning from the data or why. And, uh, and it starts to create problems because, you know, what happens when you deploy, they're like the whole point of deploying AI at your company is so that people can start to, you know, you can automate work. And so if you have to constantly watch these these things, these autonomous agents, it's, it's not that useful. You don't get the benefits that you would like to get. And so then the question becomes, well, you know, what do you do? How do you deal with that? Because occasionally they're going to learn bad things, for example. So you are today also working on a project called BotChain. So this came out of your work at Tala. What is BotChain? So the idea behind BotChain really came from this fact that the best way I can illustrate it is that if you saw the Google Duplex demo, right? This is a demo where Duplex, Google has come out with this product called Duplex. They can, it's actually an AI agent that can call and schedule an appointment on your behalf. So it works within a very narrowly scoped domain, but it can have an actual conversation. And when people saw this, I mean, we had been working on BotChain for a year, but when people saw this, they went, oh my gosh, we are soon going to be in a world where we don't know if we're talking to a human or an AI. And you're going to have these AIs that go out and do these things on your behalf. And so the question is, how do you identify these AIs, right? If a bot contacts me and says it's the Jeff bot and it's going to, you know, schedule this, uh, this podcast on your behalf, I don't know that it actually works for you or if it's somebody spamming me or if it's, you know, hackers spoof web pages, they spoof emails, they're starting to spoof bots. Like, you know, these bots need an identity. And so when you start thinking about identity, we really took some inspiration from the way that, that the web certificate model works, right? So how do you know when you go to starbucks.com that Starbucks owns that website? Well, at some point, someone has done some work to verify that and giving them a you know, cryptographic key pair to prove when you visit that website that, uh, that, that they're the owner of that website. And so we thought about, well, like we need a similar model like that for bots, but rather than have it owned by, you know, the web got set up in a very nice way where there were a lot of nonprofits and everything else. But, you know, w- would you want Amazon to own that bot registry? Would you want Facebook to own that bot registry? Or would you rather it be something that was decentralized, that nobody controlled and nobody owned, and we all just sort of participated in algorithmically and democratically? And so that's the idea behind BotChain, right, is that BotChain is this network, this token curated registry where the token is an incentive for the ecosystem to only let good bots on, to push bad bots off. Um, and to make sure that every bot has an identity that is tied to a blockchain address. And so then what can happen once you have identity is you can start to build other stuff. You can build archiving and compliance for the bots. So if you're going to deploy them in a manner where they need to be auditable, now you can identify the bot. You can issue little digital receipts for everything that the bot does that are auditable. You can, uh, you can build reputation 
because you have an identity uh, that you can build that around. You can let bots engage you know, longer term in communicating with each other or commerce with each other. So the core idea behind BotChain is really a token curated registry for identity for any autonomous AI agents, but you can see how that builds into a lot of interesting things about where the world is going. There are lots of business applications that use some form of machine learning, even if the business doesn't call it explicitly machine learning. So in some form, these systems are bots, but I'm not sure if that fits your definition of bot. How do you define a bot? Well, we use it pretty openly, right? I think of it as any sort of agent that is making decisions and changing on its own, right? It could be an API endpoint that is suddenly machine learning driven. It could be a chat bot. It could be a, a piece of a, it could be a process in a robotic process automation system. Eventually it could be a, a physical robot that operates in the real world, right? That you could see, you know, being part of bot chain. So we use a pretty broad definition because I think they're all going to need an identity to really go out and operate in the world the way that that we as humans do. So what kinds of information would a bot developer want to write to a bot chain? Yeah, so it, it depends on the use case, but some of the examples that we've seen that people have approached us about, you know, a simple example might be a city government that has a chatbot on the website or that's that's doing some work for citizens. And they want to know, maybe they don't want this, they want to know what information they've collected about that specific citizen. And so you can think about this as a little bit GDPR-like, but rather than writing the data, right, rather than saying, hey, you know, we, we collected, you know, Rob's birth date and it's this day, you know, you just write the fact that you collected it. So you just say, we collected Rob's birth date. We don't know what it is. We're not writing that to the blockchain, but we're writing the fact that we collected it there. So that might be something that you want to know and you want in an immutable ledger because we know that when faced with difficult choices, Companies and governments, they forge data sometimes, and they, they change data, and they delete data. And that's why email archiving systems exist, and that's why legal hold systems exist, and, and stuff like that. You know, other stuff that we've seen is if you're going to deploy software, AI software, autonomous agents that are part of some compliance-based workflow. So uh, you know, it has to meet a HIPAA standard or a, uh, some kind of ISO standard or whatever it is. How do you know that the software is still in compliance a year later if it's changing and evolving and learning? And so that's, uh, you might want to just hash all its activities. So you could just go back and, and track that down if you had to improve that. Like, like, you know, you can see a scenario where you're a bot developer and your bot does something bad and you think, uh-oh, this is, this is not good. I need to go delete some logs so that no one knows this happened. Uh, and that's where you can really, once you have this bot identity, you can use the immutability of, of the blockchain to say, you know, that's impossible because we hashed everything that happened, you know, to the blockchain. So... You have to go out and you, you can prove that, you know, there was different information there or, you know, that something did happen this way. So the classic example of wanting accountability in an artificial intelligence system is I go and apply for a loan and I get rejected. And it's a black box as to why I was rejected because this loan determiner, this back-end loan determination system has taken in all of this input about past loans and who defaulted on loans. And there's all this data around, you know, each of these loans in the past that the machine learning algorithm has trained on. And that training algorithm led to the model that evaluated my own loan application and said, "Mm, we don't see this as a positive expected value loan. So this is a type of bot that we would want 
some accountability around perhaps or if we're going to audit this type of system if we if the government has some compliance system around how you can determine who is is uh, is creditworthy then you know you would need to audit this type of system what's the api there what's the integration system there like if you if 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 you wanted to create a way for that person who's creating that loan software that loan application uh, auditing software where would they need to integrate with this public bot chain well that is something that someone else will have to build right so one of the things to keep in mind about bot chain is it is a core protocol and you can think about it the way that you know bluetooth is a core protocol and then if you've worked in bluetooth there are these concepts called profiles that sit on top of bluetooth can, you can write a Bluetooth application without a profile, but the profiles make it easier for certain use cases like hands-free headset, for example, to configure and work. And I expect this protocol to go in a similar way. The ways that there are sort of blockchain explorers for Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other blockchains, I think you'll see similar concepts that people will write. They need to be more user-friendly than they are today. But I think those things will come a little bit further down the line. I can tell you that we're talking to some of the, the big accounting firms and audit firms about, about working on some of this stuff. Uh, they do intend to audit people's machine learning processes over time. So I think it'll be a thing that'll really happen. But yeah, as with everything blockchain related, there's a lot of UX work that has to be done to get this stuff user friendly and actually, you know, more valuable and useful than it is today. Are you sure that this kind of thing will be auditable? Because like I have, I really have a hard time imagining how this loan application thing, like where exactly you would integrate i mean would you and and also in a way that would be that would be privacy supporting so like if you if you imagine just like all these different people who have submitted loan applications do you so do you publish all of the data that they are contributing to the model during the training process then you have these like privacy implications i think in a situation like that i think you just publish a hash right you publish a hash of the data so that you can go back and prove let me give an example something you don't want to happen you don't want, like, let's say you have a, a loan application where race is optional and you get a notice that says, hey, we have, you know, we have had a lawsuit filed against us that says we, uh, there, there are certain, you know, races that we do not send loans to accurately. So we're going to need to pull some of our data and show. And so now you go in and you delete race off a bunch of the applications that were denied so that you can say, well, see, that was never a factor, right? And, and you know, and you could say, well, people don't do that. People do this all the time in companies, right? You read about it in the paper every day, companies doing bad things, things they shouldn't do. So in that scenario, what you would do is, if you have a hash of the data that's stored on a blockchain, you can go back and you can say, well, the, the, the hash of that loan information doesn't match, right? because the way that a hash works is if you change any single, you know, bit of data, the hash doesn't, uh, doesn't work anymore. And so I think in those kinds of scenarios where privacy is a big issue, I think you can store the data encrypted on a blockchain if it's small enough, or you can, you can just store a hash of it and I think that's more what we'll what we'll see in those use cases. So in the hash case, then you would need to have like an auditing firm that would go and talk to the loan algorithm company, and then the loan algorithm company would have to be able to would have to first show the data that they put through the system, and then they would have to they so they could they could sh- and then because then they could show the data and then say hey this data hashes to the thing that's on the blockchain but then you still have the problem of like how does that machine learning company the the loan company how do they convince the auditors that they actually ran this data 
through their algorithm in the training process. Yeah. So there are a couple things there, right? You could take this for a long time, right? I mean, how do you, you know, I guess you could go down a path that you say like there, there is no 100% ground truth if you want to go philosophically, right? Because you could always be faking at some level. So when you do audits today, right, in a non-blockchain world, what do they do? What is ground truth, truth, right? So ground truth is a receipt. So maybe it's a receipt or a signature. Can people fake signatures? Can they, you know, doctor receipts? Like, they can and they do. And so I wouldn't say that this solves like every possible problem and there's still no way to commit fraud. What I would say is like any other thing else, it, it makes it a lot less likely. You know, I think if people are intentionally trying to commit fraud, you know, I think there, there's still going to be ways to get away with it. You know, it's going to be harder to do. You know, it's harder to forge U.S. dollar bills than it's ever been. But I'm sure there are still people who are extremely advanced who figure out ways to do it. So, yeah. So I don't claim it's an absolute solution. I just think it's, it's a step in the right direction. Mm. How would this contrast to a solution where you have a centralized auditing company? And if l- let's assume that we can solve the problem of bot compliance by having these bot-making companies publish a hash somewhere. Uh, what would be the difference between that being on a blockchain versus there being some central database that the the hash is given to like a like a company that, that would run that database. Yeah, so that's definitely a, you know an option as well, right? You know, you do see those companies have problems from time to time. So for an example, you could look at the credit scoring companies that were responsible for the financial crisis, right? So Moody's and S and P. The idea was, hey, these are these are pristine companies that are putting their livelihood on the line to rate these collateralized debt obligations and you know and and, and similar instruments. And what did they do? You know, over time, the instruments got too complicated for them to really understand. There was an incentive to give them good ratings because they were a business and they were, you know, trying to make the most money. And so they wanted to rate the most things. And by giving a more favorable rating, people are more likely to choose you. So it eventually caused problems in the ecosystem and and came, you know, collapsing down. So, I, you know, there's definitely a centralized model. I think uh, I think they could work. Um, I just, again, think that, that when you're talking about trust-related issues and you're talking about immutability, I mean, you can do a distributed database with, you know, some some locking mechanisms and you don't need a, you know, you timestamp them and you actually don't need a blockchain. But the nice thing about the blockchain is the immutability, right? It is, you cannot change it or the whole thing breaks. And you have a bunch of people who are disinterested parties, like, you know, you, you have a bunch of people running the Ethereum blockchain. And if you want to change something on the Ethereum blockchain, they don't really care, right? Their incentive is not to change it like it, like it would be if it was centralized. Their incentive is just to keep the Ethereum network going because that's where their economics lie. And so I think when you're dealing with cases of trust, that is when the blockchain becomes valuable, is when the value of that trust and the value of that immutability rises above the extra cost. Because blockchains are going to come with some extra costs. They're going to be, they're going to be slower for a lot of types of transactions, and they're going to be more expensive to run. So you, know, you have to be dealing with the use case where you really need the ability to confirm that you know, this was the thing that happened and uh, that it hasn't been changed. Now, would this be an example where, it, assuming bot compliance is thing that will be important, just like you know, credit ratings, wouldn't there be multiple large players? This would be like something where a consortium blockchain might make sense. Because if you have five bot ratings agencies, then you could just have them keeping each other in check instead of having to do this on a public blockchain like could couldn't they just have a five uh, you know five company shared database that they would be interfacing with instead of leveraging the public blockchain so they could 
you know, I've been a part of a couple of these standards, right? I was, I worked for a company that was very early in the Bluetooth space and it was really, really hard to get things done in the Bluetooth space because, you know, you had to go to Microsoft and you had to go to Ericsson and you had to go to Intel and you had to convince them all that this was the next thing to do. And then they had different opinions. And so development of the protocol and pushing it forward was incredibly slow and incredibly expensive and only big companies could participate. So you could argue that, like, like I wouldn't say that, that your model wouldn't work. I think, it would, I think it would work fine, right? You know, my argument would be that you would get more democratic participation. You would let smaller companies participate. You would keep it more open to anybody to put it on a, to, to use a, blo- a decentralized blockchain model, right? So the, the value in that is that, you know, people do work for the local economics on the network and they don't have necessarily the other you know, persuasive ability to push people in, a, in another direction that they might if your consortium was, hey, the five of us are going to sit down and argue about it. And, and you know, companies make threats, right? Like I've, I have been in the room uh, when I have been an executive at bigger companies where we've done this, right? We've been part of a group of people that's supposed to do something and they say, look, we're, we're going to do this our way or we're going to withdraw from the consortium and go this alone. And that's really not the way that these things should be governed, in my opinion. I don't think it's best to have, let one company have that much power. And I think when you, when you do them consortium-wide, then the most powerful company uh, always threatens to run the consortium. So with this bot chain, you have a currency, you have a bot coin. What is the purpose of bot coin? So it incentivizes the curators. We don't have a mining model, right? We put a bunch of coins in a vault and the coins get kicked out of the vault for the people that curate the network. So what will happen is, let's say you want to register your bot. You would submit it to one of these curators and they would do whatever they want to do for the level of validation that you want. Similar to a website certificate, they might ask you to put some piece of code in the bot to validate it. They might ask for your licenses and your sort of EIN and a proof of your business and whatever. I, you know, I don't know. It'll be different, different things for different curators. And then they will submit that application to the curation council and say, hey, we, we believe this company does own this bot. Here's the reasons why. Here's the evidence. And the curation council can challenge that or not. Provided the bot gets added, then the thing that happens, or if it doesn't get added, you, you can kick these out for challenges too, um, is that tokens get put out of the vault to the different curators for them to own. So the way that people mine Bitcoin so that they can, you know, and, and sort of validate the Bitcoin blockchain so that they can make Bitcoin, people validate the token curated registry of botchain in order to own botcoin. I see. So if I have my loan company and I want to get my AI loaning system to be integrated with with botchain, there would be some point at which I would say, okay, I, now I want to be integrated with botchain so that I am compliance proof. And so I would publish some hash of, I guess, of my data that I have written into my model up until T0, where T0 is the point at which I'm writing to, to botchain. So I would publish all of this data into, into botchain, or a hash of all this data, and maybe also a hash of, I guess, the, the weights of my model or my model itself, something like that. That, yeah, so that's one way to do it, right? You know, there is a company that may start up, you know, that I've talked to the entrepreneurs who, um, who reached out, who may build a model hosting. So, so you can think about like GitHub plus botchain for AI. And one of the things that they're thinking about is like, hey, if we host it and run the models and we keep all the versioning, and then we post hashes of those versions to botchain, we can make it easy for the company. So, you know, we're already seeing, I mean, you know, we've signed, I think, uh, 19 partners that have signed onto the protocol and, uh, you know, including the two biggest, you know, bot platforms in the world, the biggest paid bot platform and the biggest open source bot platform. And so I think now we're starting to see some entrepreneurs who want to build companies on top of bot chain, you know, despite the fact that it's a very early stage protocol. And so 
Uh, so, you know, so I don't know what the solution will look like long term. You know, blockchain itself has a whole bunch of problems with speed and scalability and transaction throughput. And, you know, I, and I think, you know, smart engineers will solve these problems over the next, you know, three to five years. So I hope that that timing lines up with, you know, with what will happen for botchain. But yeah, you know, I think there'll be a couple of different ways to implement some of this stuff. Now, so the auditing process, again, it seems really hard because the thing is sometimes, you know, in the case of the loan application, it's not just like, let's say you have a, a data set that is uh, how you're training your your model. If you include race in there, yeah, obviously that could end up being problematic. But there are also all these latent signals that might be proxies for race. So perhaps, you you know, there's a particular part of town where 95% of the people in the community are a certain race, and, you know, maybe you overtrain on this. And so if you had if there's a human auditor that is looking at the data and looking at the model, they may not even see these latent signals. Oh, sure. And I should clarify, like, that's not the goal of botchain, right? The goal of botchain is not to make models interpretable or, you know, be able to help auditors determine that. The goal of botchain is sort of like the goal of double entry bookkeeping or anything else. It's to be able to prove that the thing you said happened has a record and that it did happen. Now, like with any blockchain, if you write the wrong data to it, or if you're, you know, if you're being nefarious from the beginning, that's not a problem that we can solve. There's no feature of botchain that would help you interpret the model or anything else. Those, those things will have to come from other people. Like, you know, just, just as an example, there's no, like if, you know, if you have an email archiving system that analyzes your emails, the auditor, there's no automatic tool that sort of goes through and says like, oh, these emails have language tied to this thing that implies that you did this wrong thing. It's like, no, auditors just go and they pull all the email from your system that's related, you know, they do a keyword search and then they, the auditors still have to manually look at it and sometimes turn it over to an expert in another field or a behavioral, uh, you know, psychologist or somebody who can say, oh yeah, that's actually wrong thing or that's a violation of this law or whatever. So, so, you know, you, you still, you know, auditors still have to pull in experts from other fields pretty frequently that, you know, I think this would be no different. So in this case, if you have these people who are curating the bot registry, so that the token curated bot registry, these people who are curating their, if I understand correctly, these curators, the point at which somebody integrates with bot chain, the curator is responsible for auditing them or just for accepting their hash? What exactly is the role of the curator in the, the token curated bot registry? Yeah, so there's two roles. And you can think about it this way as like, what is the role of Komodo in issuing digital certificates, right? So what Komodo will do is depending on the certificate you buy, they might do different things. So my expectation is that people innovate and create different levels of certification and validation for bots, just like they did for digital certificates. And so um, so the curator might say, okay, you're claiming that you're Tala and you're putting this bot on the chain. Are you really Tala? Do you have access? Do you have a copy of Tala's incorporation documents from the state of Delaware and can you send me that? Okay, you sent me that. Can you send me the driver's license of the top three stockholders in Tala so I can prove like, you know, if you have access to those, okay, you're probably a little more serious, right? Okay, can you can you embed this code in the bot so that when I send it this command, it'll respond in this way? Oh, wow, you can do that? Okay, you, you must actually control the bot because you couldn't have anticipated that I would do that, right? And so they can take some steps like that you know, a lot of sort of, you know, know your customer steps and, and things that financial companies would do, you know, before they approve you to, to get on. And then they would, and so that's one step. The other step would be validate some of that. So maybe you don't actually interact with the customer, but 
you double check IDs and you agree when somebody submits something, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your financial companies will use a third party for something like this, where it's like they might collect the information and you turn it over to the third party and the third party says, yes, I agree. This information is what you say it is. And it's valid. It's like getting something notarized or something like that. So in this case, what's the difference between the level of trust that we are putting in the curators versus the the amount of trust that we might be putting in like centralized agency type of things like in contrast to so that what is the difference between the curator that that works around the blo- the bot chain ecosystem versus a world where you have bot compliance company like the bot compliance agency and and you if you want to get your bot compliant you go to one of these bot compliance agencies is in both of these cases isn't there some some trust issues inherent in the fact that you're uh, you're agreeing to this person's opaque expertise yes absolutely right and so the difference is so, so think about it this think about it this way how would you build a model and so, so I, I think you're thinking about it backwards right you don't think about it as like how can we build a model for trust how can you build a model if you assume Let's assume that people are going to try to validate bad things and get bad bots on there that shouldn't be validated, and they're going to try to forge information. So that's how you have to approach all blockchain projects, right? Let's assume there's a centralized actor, and they're a centralized company, and they're nefarious. They're going to try to put bad bots on there for personal reasons, right? Or they get hacked by somebody, and this hacker, they don't realize they're hacked, and the hacker's trying to get their bots approved through their system in a similar way. How can you prevent that? And that's what blockchain can do, right? Because what blockchain can do is say, well, three people or five people or 15 people or however many nodes or however many curators have to sign off. So it starts to become harder, right? If you have one person that has to approve something and you can tell that person like, look, I'm going to slide you $100,000, you know, to approve this bot, that might happen. They might approve a bot they shouldn't. Well, if you have three people, you have to pay $100,000 to or seven people. Well, now it gets more expensive. Like, could you still do it? Yeah. You could. If it's 15 people, now it's, you know, it's 1.5 million. Like that's a lot more than 100,000. Like how bad do you want this bot on there? And so the more decentralized you make it and the more people that have to examine the data and say, yes, I agree, the more sure you are that it's correct. Again, you never get to 100%, but can you go from 98% to 99.5% or 99.8% or, you know, four nines or, or whatever, right? It's, it's very similar to other problems in software, which is how many copies of data do you need to know that under no scenario you could ever, ever lose this data, right? Is, is two copies enough? Is four copies enough? Is five copies enough? Or what, what if AWS goes down? What if, you know, we get hit by an EMP bomb and, you know, all these things go down? Like, you know, there's, it's a similar sort of thought process. So I think that's a lot of the blockchain applications that you'll see, but it's going to be more expensive, right? Because they have five people look at the data is clearly more expensive than having one person look at it. And so I think what you'll see is I think you'll see models where blockchain only works when you need that extra level of trust. When, you know, 98% is not enough, you need to be at 99.5, it might be worth it to use the blockchain. You know, it's similar to the kinds of testing that you might put in place if you're, you know, putting something in a, you know, putting a circuit in a kid's toy versus you're putting a circuit on the space shuttle. You're going to have different levels. You know, it's worth, the circuit might, might cost 20 times as much building the same circuit for the space shuttle level of quality, but, you know, it's a, it's a different use case and it requires a high, high level of reliability. So, yeah, so I don't, I don't mean to imply that, you know, there may be centralized bot trust tools that, you know, people use for lots of different things. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I think that'll be a, a very lucrative market as well. So the process of 
doing a company where coins are part of the financing process. So this is a fairly new phenomenon. It's We've had equity for a long time. We've had debt structures for a long time. When you factor in the idea of having a coin within a traditional company, how does that affect the the cap table, the the capitalization, uh, you know, in, in comparison to equity or debt? It really doesn't hit the cap table, right? Because it's basically just considered revenue, right? So the way you could think about this is if I was going to, well, I'll give you an example. I used to use a company in the early 2000s or mid 2000s called TubeMogul. T-U-B-E-M-O-G-U-L. And what they did was they converted videos because it used to be hard to convert a video. It's easy now. But in 2006, if you wanted to take a video from one format to another, you could download, you know, FFmpeg, which was open source, and try to figure it out yourself if you were technical. Or you could, you could upload, you know, you could upload a tube mogul and select the video format you wanted to convert it into, and then they would, they would convert it for you. And so what you did was you bought credits in TubeMogul. So you would go in and you would say, well, I don't know how many videos I'm going to need. They don't know how to price a monthly subscription because if you need one video versus a thousand videos a month, it's very different. So they just sold you credits and you spent a credit anytime you wanted to convert a video. And so those credits counted as revenue towards TubeMogul, right? And now imagine if TubeMogul had said, hey, you could trade your credits with other people. And because you can trade your credits with other people, we're going to just put it on a blockchain to make sure that there's not extra credits floating around that we're just creating out of thin air. There's only the credits that people have really bought. Well, now you've got a cryptocurrency. Right. And so, so actually, so the way that the IRS classifies a lot of these at the moment is, you know, for use cases like this is actually just as revenue. Right. So, you know, we, we built the product and we sold you a, a unit of access to the product that you can consume when you want to consume it. And so that counts as revenue and doesn't, uh, doesn't hit the cap table. That's not the same. There are a lot of security tokens on blockchain. So people are using them to securitize assets. But there's also, you know, the United States doesn't have this, but a bunch of other countries have a specific utility token definition, which says, you know, if you do use the token on the network to perform services and consume services, and it doesn't have any extra properties like bearing interest or having profits accrued to the token holder, then it's just a utility and it's just a product. It's not a security. Did this have an interaction with Tala itself or did you, did you set up a completely separate business? Yeah, we set up a wholly owned subsidiary, uh, subsidiary to do this for a whole bunch of different reasons. You know, that I could go into, hey, take a whole podcast on the sort of uh, legal and market implications of some of this stuff that you have to do. But that turned out to be the easiest approach. Plus, we wanted to keep the assets separate because uh, they're really different business lines for us. So, hmm. Interesting. What companies do you think, what is a good fit for a company that can do, that can issue coins as part of their business? Because like I, I think I saw another company, Omise Go, recently. That's just another company that's like, they have raise traditional capital, but they've also done a coin offering. What are the companies where this makes sense? It depends a lot, right? If you want to do a securitized coin offering, which is if you just want to put your equity in a coin format, uh, so it makes it more liquid and tradable on exchanges instead of, you know, paper stock certificates or, or whatever, there's a, there's a, you know, some people, pretty much any company can do that. If you actually want a coin to be operational in your network, what you really have to think about is, do you have a protocol that should be monetized and does it need to be decentralized? And so the best way to think about does it need to be decentralized is is I I think about, here's the model I would use. If somebody in Estonia wanted to take the service that I am providing via this network and and I'm making this open source code and they want to download it and run it and they want to provide that service, whatever service I'm providing to someone in Japan, do I need to be part of that? 
Do I want to be part of that? And if the answer is no, then you might need a cryptocurrency, right? Because if you want to be part of it, then it's like, okay, well, you know, people have to have fiat currency accounts and they need to figure out, you know, how you know that that transaction's going on. And the whole thing in that scenario is, do you have a use case where you don't need to know that that transaction's going on or, or all you need is to see that transaction on the ledger? You don't actually need to approve it or partake of it or whatever. And the second use case would be one where you have assets that are coming onto and off of the network. So you see this in like, you know, Sciacoin and Filecoin and, you know, some of these AI GPU application networks where, uh, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, there's a limited number of coins and they go up and down in value depending on supply and demand on the network of the compute or storage resources that they map to. So if you have a network that might be very dynamic, you know, the, the problem with centralization is if you're, if you're Amazon and your customers demand certain number of EC2 instances, you have to figure out how do you buy and install and run that many servers that fast to keep up with demand. You know, this is yet to be proven, but people believe that if you make this a blockchain network where the incentive is a token that's built into the network, uh, where you can get EC-like, EC2-like functionality on the network, then you'll have thousands or tens of thousands of or millions of individuals or entrepreneurs or companies solving this problem simultaneously where you would say, you know, yeah, I'm going to, wow, the price is really high. I'm going to go mine Bitcoin or I'm going to go provide storage services or compute services or whatever. So it's, it's very similar to the business decision that somebody might make when they're thinking about whether they should, you know, you run a restaurant and should you own all your own stores or should you franchise them, right? If you franchise, you know, other people are going to provide their capital and do a lot, a lot of the work for you and you're going to give up some control, but your whole network of franchisees might get bigger faster, right? Um, rather than if you have to uh, use your own capital to launch your own stores, it might be a lot slower and more expensive for you at the end of the day, but you maintain more control and get more of the upside. And so those are, you know, I think those are some of the mental models that I would use to think about it. And so the, what's the process of, of going through the token creation and the token issuance? So I believe this is an ERC-20 token, is that right? Yes, yeah, and that's actually really easy. That's a couple lines of code uh, that most programmers who are familiar with blockchain could do in a matter of minutes, actually. So it's pretty simple. You know, in terms of issuing them, it really depends. It's, from a technical perspective, issuing them is simple. Uh, you know, sending them to other people. Uh, you know, if you've sent a Bitcoin or an, or an Ether, it's, it's pretty similar. You know, the, the challenge really comes to trying to figure out if you have to do, you know, if you're trying to issue them out of a wallet as part of an ICO, or if you're trying to do an airdrop or some of these people do bounty campaigns and you know there are all these weird different things where you have to think about other uh you know other models so right okay so you instantiated the tokens then you did a private token sale right so you you found investors who were interested in this idea and this was like an early issuance of the utility token to investors yes that is correct okay and then does the company also have like retain some of the tokens as uh, sort of vested equity in the in the project for the employees that are working on the project. We don't actually do that because we've had uh, we will keep some tokens for. Well, I take that back. We'll keep a, like a very very small set that we may uh, that we we may give to some key employees working on the blockchain thing. But in general, that's not our model. Like a lot of the teams out there, because we are equity funded as the parent company, and most employees have stock options. And so what we do is we simply have a um, we have some tokens that we hold on to for our own use on the network someday. But it's not anything to compensate the employees with. I see. So the way it works is you you issue the tokens and then. You the utility tokens are given away, and then the way that it presents on the balance sheet is you sold 
it's like you sold this asset and then the revenue comes into uh, to the botchain company and then it flows up to the the company that owns the botchain subsidiary, which is Tala, so that Tala has more money to fund just employee salaries, basically. We actually developed the initial version of Tala actually came from the equity capital, or the initial version of botchain came from the equity capital in Tala. And, you know, we were able to sort of get the, the core stuff done without that. You know, the revenue from the botchain sale, some of it probably uh, will be used to keep, you know, maybe to keep some people on it. But a lot of the software has been open sourced. And so I think you will have more people starting to work on it and everything else. And so you know, people that we don't, you know, we don't know and everything else. So I think it'll, it'll work like a lot of open source projects. I see. So if it's open source, does the the capital from bot like the token capital from botchain, does it does it enter into the the Tala like the Tala balance sheet? I'm just curious because I think there's a lot of people who are like considering this as a mechanism of funding their own companies. Yeah, you could, you know, I mean, you can do it a lot of different ways, right? So it does come on in the form of revenue, right? So you could think about it maybe as like pre-selling access to a service, which people do sometimes. The deferred revenue, uh, you know, might be a way to think about that's actually how we classify the token sale uh, stuff when it comes in. So it does ultimately flow through Tala's financials, but a lot of it flows back out into whether it's partnerships or, you know, or whatever else. Interesting. Okay. So to wrap up, what's the roadmap for the botchain project and for Tala the company? Yeah. So for Tala the company, we're really interested in getting a lot more deeply into automation. So how can we automate more and more and more of your work, right? That sales and support teams do every day, customer success teams, and really build more digital assistant functionality so that they can just, you know, really focus on the human interactions and the stuff that they're very good at. And then on the botchain side, you know, it's really about continuing to sign partnerships and send, you know, push these things forward and, you know, just do a good job on that and really try to make this a good open source protocol that the community can take and really help shape from here. Fascinating. So what's the engineering roadmap like for, for botchain? Like what are the features that you're focused on building right now? It's really more, you know, more functionality around scalability, better user experience for curators, a lot, a lot, a lot of UX work where blockchain has really fallen down in a lot of ways. So I think those are the things that are next up. Okay. Well, Rob, it's been great talking to you. I really uh, enjoy finding out about how companies are using blockchains and building applications with them. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wow.